we are here uh, at the end of Esther, and uh, we are going to be looking at chapter 9 and chapter 10 today, because if you notice, chapter 10 is just three verses, and it's really kind of a postscript, um, kind of some closing comments that seems like it was appropriate just to include it uh, in chapter 9. And so, uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to read uh, the entire portion uh, of uh, what we're going to look at. Uh, this morning. I already read the, the centerpiece of it before we took communion. But all that to say that um, today is July 4th, as we've already stated. It's the day that we as Americans set aside every year to celebrate our freedom, our independence. And uh, our annual calendar as uh, U.S. citizens, if you will, revolves around major holidays. We have New Year's and we have Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Easter and we have Memorial Day and now we have Juneteenth um, and Independence Day, of course, Labor Day, Columbus Day, Thanksgiving, and it all climaxes right with Christmas. And uh, you might think we were a bunch of party animals here in the U.S., right? Well, uh, the Jews are the real party animals. Uh, their, their calendar is even more packed with major holidays than ours. They have Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur as it's more often referred to, uh, the Feast of Booze and of course Hanukkah, which is uh, around the same time as our Christmas. Uh, All these Jewish holidays that I just mentioned, with the exception of Hanukkah, are mentioned in the Bible and were mandated by God himself at Mount Sinai. Uh, Hanukkah was instituted by the Jews in the second century BC to to commemorate the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem during the Maccabean revolt. Um, But there's one Jewish holiday mentioned in the Bible that was not mandated by God, which I think makes it the most unique of all the annual celebrations on the Jewish calendar. And it's called the Feast of Purim. And it was instituted by the Jewish exiles in Persia to be an annual celebration of their deliverance from Haman's devious and malicious decree to exterminate them. And the word Purim comes from the Hebrew word pur, P-U-R, which is the word for lot, which is what Haman cast to determine the day the Holocaust of the Jews would take place. Again, it's like an ancient dice, if you will. And uh, Purim, or Purim, is plural for pur. Uh, in English, when we make a, a, a noun plural, we do that by adding an S or an ES. Uh, in the Hebrew, they pluralize, pluralize nouns by adding an I-M. Like cherub becomes cherubim, or cherubim, uh, seraph becomes seraphim or seraphim, or if you've eaten at the new burger place, it's burgerine, right? Um, and that's a Jewish thing, and if you've not been there, it's pretty interesting. They have like a falafel burger and other things on their menu, so there's definitely a Jewish influence there at burgerine, but it's plural for burgers. In fact, the first time we as a staff went to the one that's already closed down here on the lake, um, they, they said that, that the, the, the concept is that you can make something like crazy amounts. They, they, they gave us a number like, you know, 30,000 different combinations of burgers you can make with what's on our menu. I'm like, you'd have to eat there for all eternity to come up with all those things. But uh, maybe we'll be eating at Burger Eam in heaven. I'm not sure. But uh, to come up with that. So again, they're just plural. Blur, burgers plural is what that means. Well, Every March, Jews around the world gather together to commemorate the events that took place in the book of Esther. And and essentially, what Purim, uh, the Feast of Purim is, is a a providence party is what it is. And it's really, it's a fun, colorful holiday. Um, Some even liken it to the Jewish Halloween because they all dress up in costumes and things and Well, it begins with a time of fasting to remember the mourning and the fasting of the Jewish exiles when Haman had decreed their annihilation. Uh, But then they go to the synagogue and they hear the story of Esther read. There's a scroll, separate scroll uh, for the book of Esther, and they read that 
to, uh, in, the, in the synagogue there, and, and they acted out. And whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they literally boo and they hiss. And the little kids are all given like little noisemakers and they, they make noise whenever Haman's name is mentioned. And they go home and they eat and they drink and they parade through the streets dressed up like the characters in the story and they hand out care packages to the poor and the needy so that it's truly a day of rejoicing for everybody. Again, just um, based on what's here in Esther chapter 9. I read somewhere uh, years ago that a Soviet Jew was once asked by a Westerner what he thought would happen or would be the outcome if Russia stepped up its anti-Semitic policies. And he quickly replied, he said, probably a feast. And when asked to explain what he meant, this Jewish man said this, quote, Pharaoh tried to wipe out the Jews and the result was Passover. Haman tried to exterminate our people and the result was Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to do us in and the result was Hanukkah. And that truly is the amazing testimony of the Jewish people throughout history. It's essentially our enemies tried to destroy us, but God deliver us. Let's eat. And in every age, the the Jews have had countless enemies who've oppressed them and attempted to wipe them off the face face of the earth, but no one has, has succeeded or ever will succeed in destroying them because they are God's people, and as God's people, that makes them invincible. When you fight against the Jews, you're fighting against God. Warren Wiersbe said it well, quote, whether it's Pharaoh in Egypt Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Haman in Persia, or Hitler in Germany, the enemy of the Jews is the enemy of Almighty God and will not succeed. Turn over real quickly to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. I love this psalm because it talks about how God is committed to confound the enemies of his people, namely Israel in this context. This is a psalm of Asaph, Psalm 83. Look at verses one through four. O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still, for behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. And then jump down to verse 13. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with this honor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. In other words, God's goal in choosing Israel and protecting Israel and preserving Israel is so that every other nation on the planet would know that he's the most high over all the earth, that there's only one true God. Frederick the Great once asked his personal physician, who was a Jew, named Zimmerman, his last name was Zimmerman, he said, Zimmerman, can you name me a single proof of the existence of God? To which he replied, yes, your majesty, the Jews. In other words, the Jews are evidence or proof that there is a God because they have survived countless regimes and individuals who have tried to take them out and wipe them off the face of the earth. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Remember, this is the Abrahamic promise or covenant. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And that's why it's so important for our country to remain a friend and supporter of Israel. Because they, here they are, this tiny little nation surrounded on all sides by giant Arab nations who would love more than anything 
than to destroy Israel. And, and some might suggest that the only way Israel has survived in modern times is, is because of the United Nations or uh, because of the U.S. aid that we've provided. But ultimately, the reason why Israel has survived is because of the providence of God. He's preserved them. He's protected them. He's provided for them. And so the book of Esther is really a microcosm of the history of Israel. And, and you could simply call it, if we hadn't chosen to call it uh, the hidden hand, you could have simply called it preservation through providence. That's another title for the book of, of Esther. And, and we broke it down into two sections. Chapters 1 through 5 was the threat to the Jews. And then chapters 6 through 10 is the triumph of the Jews. And that has been the story of the nation of Israel throughout their history, that there was a threat to their existence, but then there was a triumph, and then there was another threat, and then there was another triumph, and there was another threat, and another triumph, and it was threat to triumph time and time again. And so this morning, we're going to just conclude this this suspenseful roller coaster of a ride story. And we left off, if you remember last week, as the Jews were rejoicing and, and, and many Persians were converting to Judaism as a result of the second degree that was sent out by Mordecai that, that served to counteract uh, Haman's decree by allowing the Jews to defend themselves on the day when they were going to be attacked uh, and, and plundered by the Gentiles. And so chapter 9 actually records what happened on that pivotal day, right? So it's, it's, it's all been moving to this, what's going to happen? Well, the day came. And uh, I've divided up this chapter along with chapter 10 into three sections. We're going to see the Jews emancipated in verses 1 through 16. We're going to see Purim established in verses 17 to 32. And then finally Mordecai exalted in chapter 10 Verses 1 through 3. Let's look first of all at the Jews emancipated. Verse 1. Uh, this is chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. So nine months has passed now since the countermeasures were taken by Esther and Mordecai and, uh, in order to secure the safety of the Jews, and now the tables were completely turned, and the Jews now had the upper hand. It was, it, again, it appeared like the Jews were, had been checkmated by the, by the Persians, or at least by Haman's decree, and, and now the table was turned. It's like the, the board got flipped around, and now the Persians, the non-Jews were checkmated. They were the ones backed into the corner. Verse 2, the Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes, even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps and governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. So here we are now, the 13th day of the 12th month, the day that Haman had decreed for the destruction of the Jews by casting the lots, and the Jews took up arms to defend themselves and their families and their property and their possessions, and anyone who was foolish enough to attack them paid dearly. But notice, not everybody attacked them. Why? Notice it says at the end of verse 2, the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. In other words, God sent fear into the hearts of Gentiles to keep them from fighting his people, which is what he had done from the very beginning. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 35, Genesis 35 verse 5, this is what it says about Jacob when he returned to the land of Israel. 
After his exile, if you will, running away from his brother Esau, he returned, and in, in, in Genesis 35, verse 5, as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Normally, when a new group of people would come passing through, some uh, marauding group would come and attack them and plunder them, but nobody touched them because God put the fear or terror uh, in their hearts. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy as well, when they were about to enter the land of Canaan, originally the, the, the original uh, generation that had come out of Egypt was terrified by the Canaanites, and they said they're monsters compared to us. We're like grasshoppers. They're giants. And so here was this new generation coming in to take the promised land as the Lord had originally ordained for them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25 This is what Moses said to encourage this new generation. Deuteronomy 2.25, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And that was true of the Canaanites. They were shaking in their boots, if you will, as the Israelites crossed the Jordan and came into the promised land to take control of it. Uh, you remember the story of Rahab uh, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. This is what, um, this is what she said to the, the spies that had come in uh, to Jericho. Um, She sheltered them. She said, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og among whom whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So the Canaanites were seeing with their own hands the power of God in providing for his people and protecting his people. Uh, In Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. And then one more reference, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. This is what the Gibeonites said in in defense of why they had deceived the Israelites and made it look like they had come from a a faraway land and had traveled many months, right, Um, so that they could make a peace treaty with with the Israelites and they actually were just around the corner, just over the hill. And uh, this is how they justified this. They said to Joshua, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you, therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. So again, this is nothing new. This is what God has been doing, right, for the nation of uh, Israel uh, since the very beginning. And notice Even the government officials, verse 3, the princes, the satraps, the governors, those who were doing the king's business, they assisted the Jews. They helped the Jews. Why? Because they feared Mordecai, who had taken Haman's place and was now the second most powerful man in the kingdom. He was the new prime minister, if you will. And so they were afraid of him. They, They respected him. They didn't want to cross him in any way. Notice verse 5, thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, which was the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and Parshandatha, Dalphan, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vesatha, 
the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So in the capital alone, they, they killed 500 men along with Haman's ten sons who, again, were listed here uh, by name. Look at verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. So it, it seems that the king was even impressed by this strong showing by the Jews. He wasn't expecting this. And how ironic now that it was Esther. Here, Esther, she wasn't having to go before the king and petition him anymore. The king was the one coming to her and petitioning her. Basically, hey, what else do you want, honey? What else can I do for you, honey? I mean, he was, he was like into this now. He's like, hey, he was... Um, on her side, if you will. Again, how the tables have turned. Look at verse 13. Then said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month, Adar, and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So here Esther responds to her husband's request for what else can I do for you, honey? And she said, well, would you give us one more day so that we can wipe out any remaining pockets of anti-Semitism, particularly here in the capital? She also asked that the dead bodies of Haman's 10 sons, who, who obviously had attacked the Jews to avenge their father's death, be impaled on spikes as a public example to serve as a deterrent against any further persecution against the Jews. So Haman's wicked legacy continued here, and again, his own sons were made a spectacle of. Look at verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So along with the 800 that were slain in the capital city of Susa, 75,000 others were killed throughout the rest of the Persian Empire, even though, even though the Jews were outnumbered 1 to 10. And again, this this shows how many people hated the Jews. They, they weren't just out attacking people randomly. The Jews weren't. They were simply defending themselves. And so these were the people that were attacking them, who were getting killed. And they were merely acting in self-defense because even though they were authorized to plunder their enemies, they didn't. Have you noticed the author making that point already twice in verse 10 and verse 15, and now in verse 16, the third time, he says, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. In other words, it was clear that they were only interested in protecting themselves and not getting rich off their enemies. And so here we see the Jews being emancipated, which is followed by Purim being established. This is the section that we already read, but let's read it again, verse 17. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th day of the month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. 
So the day of fighting or the two days of fighting in the, in the capital were followed by a day of resting and celebrating their victory over their enemies. And Mordecai made it an official two-day holiday, which was later affirmed by Esther. Notice verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, and they should make them, make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had Kaspur, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that this, his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abathel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. So here was a national holiday that was to be celebrated annually by the Jews as a reminder to succeeding generations of this marvelous deliverance. And then look at verse 29. Well, excuse me, verse 30. He sent letters, this is Mordecai, to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hazuerus, named namely words of peace and truth to establish these days of Purim at their appointed time just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim and it was written in the book. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the only Jewish holiday mentioned in the Bible for which there is no basis in the Torah, the law. And yet it's considered as binding to the Jews as all the other holy days, holy days um, listed in the Mosaic law. And Purim was designed to make sure that the nation of Israel never forgot never forgot God's providence to provide for them and to protect them. And this was intended to give them hope whenever they faced another dire circumstance like the one they faced here in the book of Esther. I didn't do any research about this, but I wonder how important of a role the book of Esther played during the Jewish Holocaust and how they went back to this book to try to find hope and to remember God's care, God's provision, God's protection of his people. When another Haman-like character was seeking to annihilate them, that character obviously being Hitler, But I think this is good for us to consider because I think as Christians, we have a tendency to forget, don't we? We forget the many ways that God has, has, has providentially protected us or provided for us. And, and so I think it's good for us to have, have memorials of God's providence in our lives that we can look back on and remember how God took care of us and sustained us and, and helped us through trying circumstances and through difficult problems in our lives. 
We, we should be able to draw encouragement from the memory of what God has done for us in the past. Do you do that? When, when you're in a present crisis, do you consider how God was faithful to you in the past to sustain you, to provide for you, to protect you, um, to help you escape whatever situation you were in at the time? And that gives you hope. God has been faithful in the past. He's going to be faithful in the future. I also think that we should get into the habit of throwing providence parties. Not literal parties, perhaps, that you say, like a lot of us will be going to today, right? July 4th parties. You all get together and you eat food and you celebrate Independence Day and fireworks and all that kind of stuff, right? But I'm talking about just throughout the day, throughout the week, moments when you just, you just stop and celebrate and give glory to God when you see his invisible hand at work in your life and in your family and in your circumstances. And you just want to stop and praise him for his providence, for his provision, for his protection. And, and, and you want to you share it with others. And again, what is our theme here? We, we want to see the providence of God in everything. I think that's one of the benefits, one of the blessings of studying the book of Esther. It, 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 it makes you more sensitive. It sensitizes us to the providence of God, to, to see it more clearly, to see it maybe more quickly, and, and to give praise to God, to, to rejoice in it, and to, to rest in it. And again, something as simple as going to a concert when you bought lawn seats at the Cynthia Woods Pavilion, and you get in there, and they scan your ticket and say, oh, by the way, we've given you an upgrade. And you get to sit down in a real seat under a nice big fan in the summertime, right? That's a good day when you don't have to sit up on the lawn. You get to sit in a chair and the fans over here. And, and so we just looked at the couple that was with us and we thought, it's providence. God's good. He's gracious. He just provided for us. Um, again, you see, you have opportunities. We have opportunities every day if we're aware, if we're looking for it. It's kind of like sharing the gospel, right? You say, well, I don't really have many opportunities to show the gospel. Well, are you praying about it? I guarantee you, if you woke up every morning and prayed the simple prayer before you left your house and said, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel today with someone? I guarantee you God's going to answer that prayer. That's a prayer that God loves to answer. And what it, but what it does is it, it sensitizes you. It kind of puts your radar up. Okay, I've, I've asked the Lord. I've, I've prayed. And so now you're much more aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And all those opportunities that you never saw before are just all over the place. Same thing with the providence of God. Lord, help me to see. Pray a simple prayer every morning. Lord, help me to see your, your hand of providence in my life today. And, uh, and, and I guarantee you'll be much more aware when just, just the littlest things, right? My wife rejoices when she finds a parking spot close to where we're going. And she gives... Praise to the Lord. And I always just say, you can just call me Ken. But uh, she doesn't like it when I say that. But, but the, she, like little things like finding a parking place, right? Just, just praising God, thanking God for his sweet providence in, in just the little things, the little details of life that we often, you know, chalk up to chance or to coincidence or to luck or we really got, as luck would have it, right? Or we really lucked out. That's pagan, that's the way unbelievers think because they don't think about God. They, they, give, they give glory to an impersonal force called luck or chance. What is that? It doesn't even exist. But God is a real being that we get to glorify and honor and worship and praise and thank and adore because of the way he controls every detail of our lives and protects us and provides for us and preserves us. And if you wanted a, a simple definition of providence, that's what it is. It's just it, God's 
preservation of our lives, his, his, his protection of our lives, his, his provision for our lives. It's the P's, right? Just think about that. Providence, provision, protection, preservation. It's all included. And, and this is our inheritance as God's people. There's a house, apparently, in Scotland, an old Puritan house that in the wall of the house, there is a plaque that was engraved with this phrase, providence is our inheritance. I mean, what a great thought to have, right? Some of us should get that made on some Etsy website, right? Providence is our inheritance and slap it above our door of our house uh, or somewhere in our house just to remember that. And that Puritan family, however many years ago they lived in that house, they were, they were aware of the fact that they were God's children, and as God's children, they could count on and expect God to take care of them. And so Purim was established. And then lastly, Mordecai was exalted. And here we come to the final chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Tribute, perhaps being a tax, maybe a word that we would understand better. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with, the many, with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So here we find the conclusion that begins by highlighting the power and the wealth of Ahasuerus and the relevance of the statement about taxation there, he laid a tribute on the land um, to the most distant shores of the empire. It's not clear, but it may imply that Mordecai played a role in engineering this new system of taxation as a substitute for war and plundering, which was the source of wealth for the Persian kingdom. They would just go and destroy everybody and take their stuff. And that's how they got so rich. Well, now we're going to tax our people in a way that would, we could be more peaceable. And I love how it says that Mordecai's advancements and, and accomplishments went down in the annals of Persia alongside the kings, uh, alongside those of King Ahasuerus. So you could read about this Jewish man in, in these pagan records. Here was this once despised Jew, now exalted to the second in command and beloved and revered by everyone. And as it says at the end there, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation, verse 3. In other words, unlike Haman, he used his position to serve the king, not himself, and to do good to people, not harm. And he was a great Jewish patriot and a faithful advocate for his people who continued to defend their welfare against forces still at work in the empire who posed a threat to the Jews. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but you could put Mordecai right alongside guys like Joseph and Daniel who served in similar strategic positions, positions in, these, in these pagan kingdoms. Joseph, of course, in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, and you have Mordecai in Persia. Well, we love the story of Esther, don't we? Because it's such a great demonstration of the providence of God. Probably the best illustration or demonstration of providence anywhere in the Bible. But it, it really is it's simply foreshadowing the greatest demonstration of God's providence in all of history, which was what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, I want us to close thinking about 
the cross and how it truly is the ultimate example of God's providence in all of history, which shouldn't surprise us because it's the most important event in the history of the world. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, notice how Peter describes the crucifixion. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and he's preaching to the Jews at the, on the day of Pentecost and wanting them to understand what had just happened and what they could do to repent and be saved. This is chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, a Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So again, the cross of Christ was all part of God's sovereign plan. And we said that providence is God's sovereignty in what? Action, right? God makes his sovereign decrees in eternity past and says this is what's gonna happen. And then he works them out through his providence. And in the same way he used Haman, God used Haman to bring himself glory. He also used these godless men to put his son to death on the cross. But it was ultimately by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then look at chapter 4 of Acts. And this is when the apostles were threatened that they were going to get thrown in jail if they kept preaching about Jesus. And so they had a prayer meeting and prayed about it, asked the Lord for courage and strength and wisdom. And in chapter 4, verse 27, they said this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, here it is, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So from a human perspective, the, the crucifixion of Christ was a, a, a complete disaster. Wickedness was at its worst, and yet God was still in control. And when it, when it appeared like Jesus was helpless in the hands of sinful men, he was actually in the hands of the sovereign God, in the invisible hand of the sovereign God because God's hand, right, was at work behind the scenes in everything that took place around the cross of Christ. And just like the negative symbol of poor became a symbol of hope to the Jewish people, the cross, this instrument of execution, of death, serves as a symbol of hope to us as Christians and a reminder of our amazing deliverance from the terrors of eternal punishment. It's what I said earlier that, that we, we, we recognize this in, in, in the ordinance of communion. It's a celebration. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of rejoicing. Our salvation in Christ. And as I stated at the very, from the very beginning, God is never mentioned once in the book of Esther and neither is Jesus Christ. But the story is all about God thwarting Satan's plan to eliminate the Jews, to prevent the Messiah from being born so that we would be ultimately delivered from sin and death through the coming of Christ. So in other words, we wouldn't be sitting here or standing here today if it weren't for the events of Esther. That's what Satan was all about. Through Haman, he wanted to cut off the Jewish race so their seed would end and there would be no promised Messiah who is to be our Savior. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can endure all the trials 
and the difficulties that we face in life when we wonder where God is or we question what he's up to. And again, you may be in the middle of some hard, scary time right now in your life. And unfortunately, like, you, you can't kind of look ahead at the end of the story, right? We can turn to the final chapter of Esther and Mordecai and go, okay, everything's going to work out okay. We, we know how it ends. Well, you can't do that with your story, right? We don't know what the future might bring or how our story will turn out, and that's why we're tempted to worry. We're, we're tempted to be fearful or anxious or even to take matters into our own hands. That's what we do, to try to control our destiny, control our future. But again, God's providence displayed in the book of Esther should remind you to cling to his promise that God causes, what? All things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who call, are called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight. So if you are truly one of God's people, then you can have the confidence that he will provide for you, he will protect you, and he will preserve you. You say, Ken, I don't have that confidence. How can I get that confidence? I want to live my life with that kind of confidence. Well, the only way you can experience that is if you're one of God's people. You're, you're one of those that love God and who have been called according to his purpose. In other words, you need to repent of your life of sin and you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You need to do what we were doing earlier, right? We were proclaiming Christ's death as the only way that we could be made right with God. That was, that's what we were doing during a communion. And so you need to know Jesus, which happens when you admit the fact that you're a sinner and you're willing to turn away from that sin. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and that it's only through what he did through his life and his death, his perfect life and his awful death, it's the only way we can made, you can be made right with God, the only way you can be forgiven for your sin, and then you commit your life to follow and obey Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I promise you that if you make that commitment to Christ, you will have this confidence. And frankly, I don't know how people who don't know Christ can even function in this world apart from Christ. I would be in the funny farm I would be locked up somewhere because there's just, you know, living in a fallen, broken world with a real devil and a real flesh and, and all the chaos that we're surrounded by every day. I don't know how you function apart from Christ and not go crazy, not go out of your mind. I'm sure that you have all heard of the, the name Corrie Ten Boone. She's probably most famous for her book, The Hiding Place. And it's a story, a true story, about how her family had a hiding place in her dad's clock um, uh, store. And uh, they would hide Jews uh, during the Holocaust when the Germans would come and, and try to, you know, take them, collecting all the Jews and taking them off to the concentration camps, they would hide them in their secret uh, hiding place. And so, as you know, if you know the story, they got arrested. They, they, they found the Jews in their hiding place. They found the hiding place. And not only did the Jews get arrested, they got arrested as well. And they were brought, put on the trains and they were brought to the concentration camps and endured all those stories that we know of what happened in those concentration camps. In that book, she likens life to a tapestry. And she says that 
as it unfolds in real time, our lives, it's like looking at the back of the tapestry. And, and, and sometimes we look at our lives and they appear to be nothing more than this jumble of thread all tangled up and frayed and occasionally knotted and it looks random. Nothing really makes sense and yet things aren't always what they seem. And it's only when you take that tapestry and you turn it over that you see the art, right? The colors and the, the texture and the patterns that, that make tapestry such, an, such, such a beautiful piece of art. And it reminded me of a, of a little poem that I read years ago called The Weaver. Some of you may have heard this or read this before. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper but I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as threads of gold and silver in the pattern life has planned. Occasionally, God graciously gives us a glimpse at what he's weaving into the fabric of our lives. But as I said earlier, providence is usually best viewed after the fact, right? It's hard to read into the providence of God or, or not. Um, it's, it's dangerous to read into the providence of God ahead of time. But that momentary peak gives us the courage to soldier on knowing that nothing happens by chance. There's no thread of experience, good or bad, that's ever wasted. And when it seems like, God, what are you doing here? This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like you. We need to remind ourselves that we're, we're simply looking at the backside of the tapestry. And, then, and the one who's weaving it all together knows precisely what he's doing and he can and must be trusted. And so I close with a simple definition again of God's providence. God's providence is his good, kind, and unceasing activity and control of all things so that everything happens as he decided long ago and for the good of his people. He watches over the interest of each of his children as if he had no other creature for whom to care. Nothing escapes his notice or happens without his permission. Even the worst things will work out for our good and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this privilege that we've had to study uh, the book of Esther together. I pray that it would just continue to give us fuel for our journey, Lord, as we go through this sin-cursed, fallen, broken world with all sorts of chaos all around us in the world and even in our own lives and our families, uh, in our health and our finances and our marriages, Lord, that this book would just give us hope that we not soon forget the lessons that we've learned together as a church, and that we would even um, remind one another that we would uh, have little providence parties throughout the day and throughout the week as we just uh, celebrate your goodness and your invisible hand at work in our lives, and that we would model that for our children and for one another, that we would give uh, you the glory and praise you and thank you and adore you when we see your hand at work. And so make us more perceptive of what you're doing in our, each of our lives so that we can give you even more praise and honor than we do now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.